This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch up with all things English history every Thursday. So just tap subscribe to get regular updates to your podcast feed. Today we're talking about a man who was largely silent in the way that we remember him and a man who is one of Hollywood's most famous stars, but who came from the humblest of backgrounds in England. But there was so much more to Charlie Chaplin, who 70 years ago in September 1952 was actually barred from re-entering the US. And it wasn't until 2017 that he was finally honoured with an official blue plaque at a former London home. Joining us now to describe the life and times of one of cinema's true greats is senior historian for Blue Plaques, Howard Spencer. Howard, Charlie Chaplin became Hollywood's highest paid actor of his time, yet he grew up in poverty, and many of us will know about his success, but what do we know about his formative years? Well, they were, as you've just said, very hard. I mean, it was sort of up and down a bit, really. His parents were both performers, so when they were doing well, then the family lived in reasonable circumstances, and when they weren't, they didn't. They also split up when he was two. He was born in 1889 in Southwark, which was one of London's poorer districts, as shown by the Charles Booth poverty maps of this, that kind of era. His father um, was unfortunately an alcoholic and died when he was 12 in 1901, also named Charles. Mother Hannah Hill had mental health problems, unfortunately, which meant several spells in various asylums. And sadly, on one of those occasions, the admission doctor wrote the letters SYP on her admission form, which means he believed that she was suffering from syphilis, which adds greater sadness to his, his upbringing, really. And as a result, her sons, Charlie and his, his older brother, Sidney, had several spells in workhouses and in workhouse schools in Newington, uh, it's Newington in South London, Lambeth and in Hanwell in West London. Now, some people might be familiar with workhouses from their own historical research or perhaps even from filmic depictions like in Oliver Twist, the musical. So what exactly was a workhouse? Well, um, back at that period, you didn't have unemployment benefit or social security or welfare, whatever you want to call it, in the way that we would understand from the post-war era. Basically, if you were on the skids, the workhouse was where you ended up if you were unemployed, homeless, possibly ill as well. I mean, it's it's no coincidence that many of the workhouses actually ended up as hospitals because many of the people who were admitted to them had health problems of one sort or another. Now, they were designed to be quite nasty, really, as a deterrent to ensure that people only went in there if they absolutely needed to, so that the work on offer was pretty horrible work, like breaking stones or picking oakum from rope. So that's when you, you were given a spike and asked to disassemble rope in order to produce oakum, which was then used for caulking timbers for ships, uh, waterproofing them effectively. So, yeah, many of the buildings do survive. And, and some, as I said, are, are now hospitals. I mean, where I live, for example, the Brighton General Hospital up on the hill to the east of the town is the former workhouse. And it's a gaunt grey building and it seems to sort of glower down on the town and they were seen as it, it was a great social stigma to to end up in one so it was not a great start in life for Charlie Chaplin. And he attended uh, a number of these and where you'd get an education as well? 
That's right. Yes, I mean he he and his brother were sent out to Hanwell for a while in in uh, West London when at a point when their mother couldn't look after them. They were sort of educated and you know get, did obviously gain the rudiments of instruction. And I mean obviously later on he was for a man who had such a sort of fragmentary education, he was incredibly literate and re- really really quite extraordinary. Yeah, so the key question is next, you know, uh, despite all these really unfortunate happenings in his early life, how did he then sort of develop this interest in performance? Both his parents were on stage. They were both musical performers with different levels of success. His father was actually quite a successful performer. His mother, who performed as Lily Harley, serial comedian, impersonator and dancer, was much less so. But it was it was her who basically encouraged him. She saw something in him, he, he later recalled, a talent for performance, and she encouraged him and Brother Sidney, who also went on, on stage, to do that. So it was, it was really from her side that that came. I mean, he, he said in his memoirs that his father disappeared when he was two and he had no sort of consciousness of him in, in his early life at all. I mean, he did, he did actually go to live with him for a while, around sort of 10 to 12, that sort of time. Am I right in saying as well that uh, Charlie's brother Sidney may not have been directly related to him? I think he was. I think they were, he was possibly a half brother rather than a brother. It was his paternity that was in some doubt, and actually, the, the reason that his parents split up was because his mother had an affair with another music hall star. At least that's the the ostensible reason for it. Right. Okay. But were they fairly close? The brothers were incredibly close. I mean, Sidney, who was, who was a couple of years older, essentially acted in loco parentis to Charlie given that you know, his, his parents were sort of unavoidably absent for um, quite a lot of his childhood. Okay, well, let's talk um, a bit more about um, how this uh, interest in performance kind of developed. Um, I understand that, like many comedians, Charlie Chaplin was someone who had a keen eye for what other people were doing around him. An observational comedy is... is well, it's a type of comedy, isn't it? And I think that's where he kind of got his ideas, didn't he? It was character-based, yes. I mean, he did actually have a go at doing vaudeville comedy, which was sort of close to what we would call stand-up. And it was a disaster. He was no good at it. Where he excelled was in, was in the sort of character-based stuff. And just to sort of sketch his, his early career, he's said to have first performed aged five in Aldershot, Hampshire, home of the British Army, of course, um, particularly at that time. His mother's voice gave out and he was basically um, went on in her place and gave a performance that was much applauded and he got lots of coins thrown at him and he thought, well, quite like this. So that was another another sort of key moment. Uh, and then in, in 1899, he toured with a group of clog dancers called the Eight Lancashire Lads. Of course, uh, Trade Descriptions Act, he wasn't actually from Lancashire. I think some of them were. But that was another another formative point. And then he toured with Casey's Circus. On a more serious acting note, he, he toured in a performance of, of Sherlock Holmes. And it was said that audiences in Ashton under line couldn't understand his accent because he had such a strong Cockney accent at that point. <laughs> right. OK. So where in London did he live before getting this success in America? Well, he, he lived mostly in what's now Lambeth in many, many different addresses. I mean, it's, you know, the, we, we know the old musical song, My Old Man Said Follow the Van, which is basically about moving a lot in order to escape your debts, in order to escape the rent collector. And there was definitely a bit of that going on. Given that he left this country pretty much for good, 
when he was 21. It's pretty extraordinary. There's about 20 different addresses, mostly in Lambeth, some in some in Southwark, and then of course you've got the period he spent out in Hanwell at the at the schools in, in out out in the sort of far west of London. Now most of these addresses have gone, but there are quite a few survivals, as it turns out. Now they moved sort of according to his parents' circumstances, as I referred to earlier. Sometimes they lived in quite salubrious places. For example, they lived in West Square in Lambeth when he was quite small, and that was quite a nice address because his father was actually doing quite well at that point. Um, he was actually born in a place called East Street, which is in Walworth, which is part of Southwark, referred to as East Lane, not because it had trees and hedges going up and down it, but a, a lane in, in London terms means somewhere where there was a street market. So he was born somewhere there. And we don't actually know which number he was born at, possibly number 97, where his grandfather had a shop. But we don't definitely know where he was born. There is a, a Southwark Council plaque on the corner of East Street, which commemorates the fact that he was born somewhere in that area. But we don't actually entirely know where. There is no birth certificate for him, which, again, gives some clue as to the fact he, was, he didn't have a very easy upbringing. Which was the address then that um, he and his brother were living at before he went off to America? Well, that was 15 Glenshaw Mansions uh, at the top of the Brixton Road near Oval Tube. And that was his longest settled address uh, in London. He was there for two years. And we'll say a little bit more about that later. The other sort of prominent ones, I guess, I mean, there, was, there have been several that have been commemorated by other organisations. There's one at 39 Methley Street which was he described as being behind Kennington Cross near the Haywards Pickle Factory. And apparently it absolutely stank when they were boiling up the uh, pickles in the afternoon. And there's a plaque on that which was put up by an organisation called the Dead Comics Society. And there's also a plaque on number 287 Kennington Road put up by the Vauxhall Society. And this is where he lived for a while with his father and his father's uh, new partner, who was called Louise Unfortunately, there's a, bit, there's a bit of discrepancy there. Chaplin remembered it as number 287 in his memoirs, but the records that I looked at, so I, I look at things like electoral registers and directories and so on to sort of verify stuff, and they say that his father lived at 289, so it's possible that the plaque actually should be on the house next door. These are the, uh, the various sort of unofficial commemorations of him. How else did uh, Charlie Chaplin's career develop here in England? We left him not being understood in Ashton under line uh, while he was playing Sherlock Holmes. Now, after that, from 1908, he was part of a comedy troupe called Fred Carno's Troupe. Fred Carno was a theatrical impresario, and it was basically something like sketch comedy, and they toured the music halls with this. It was very slapstick stuff. Fred Carno, whose real name was Fred Westcott, has been credited with inventing the custard pie joke. <laughs> So the name Fred Carno became a kind of byword for disorganisation. In World War I, the conscript army had a song that went, we are Fred Carno's army. And it was actually a term that my father, who was born many years after all this happened, he used to use that term, oh, it's all a bit Fred Carno, to mean something that was totally uh, disorganised. Uh, so he was part of that troupe, as was his brother, Sidney, and it was lucrative. I mean, they actually made some decent money on that. And rather touchingly, in a sad sort of way, he played Chaplin, specialised in playing inebriated swells, and he would have known what that looked like because of his father, of course. He would have known what, what a drunkard looked like. Other characters that he played were Stiffy the goalkeeper in a sketch about football, 
and also a boy hero called Jimmy the Fearless. Remember, at this time, he's effectively he's only he's only about twenty, so he's he's able to play sort of boy parts. Right. Okay. So that's how his career is gradually developing over on this side of the pond. That's right. And and, and what happened was that Carno got the opportunity to go to the United States, and basically he took Chaplin with him, and that's when he left in September. 1910 and, and he did he didn't like goodbyes so he just left a message popped up next to the teapot for his brother saying gone to america we'll keep in touch and left on the dawn to go and get the boat from southampton and that was more or less it so obviously um when opportunity knocks you have to go um quite quickly in, exactly. in charlie yeah. chaplin's case what about his first film then obviously success eventually comes when he gets to america was it was it quite quick after he arrived it was fairly rapidly that he was spotted with Fred Carnot's troupe while touring America by Max Sennett, who ran the Keystone Company. And he spotted this talent for slapstick that Chaplin had and signed him to the Keystone Company. The first film he made was in 1914 called Making a Living. In that, he played a, a sort of English stereotype con artist thereby possibly um, setting the tone for the, the, the Hollywood tendency to you know, portray villains as being English. Right. I don't know. But uh, it also, it also it was a film that had the famous Keystone Cops in it, and it uh, played for 12 and a half minutes, which was pretty typical for films of that time. They, were, they tended to be very short. That's very interesting. And I like the title as well, almost reflective of where he's going in his career, just trying to make a living, but also do his art as well. So why was that first film really important? I suppose because it was the first step. Yes, it set, it set him on his way. I mean, the character of the little tramp, which is you know how he's remembered really, was actually in another short film of the same year called Kid Also Races at Venice. And he based the pigeon-toed walk of the tramp on a local character he'd seen walking around in Lambeth. So you can see how his upbringing sort of fed through into his work in films. And he had a pretty remarkable run in his early career. He appeared in a huge number of films. How many did he make during this period? Well, he made 35 in a single year in 1914, which is, which is extraordinary, even, even though they were fairly short films, that's still going some. The early highlights of his career, I guess, were The Vagabond and The Pawn Shop, which were both in 1916. And then there was a film called Easy Street in 1917. But he was more than just an actor, wasn't he, Charlie Chaplin? I mean, absolutely. He, he, there was a lot to what he could bring to film history. He was a writer, director, producer, and also on some occasions wrote the musical scores. I mean, he wrote the theme music for a much later film, for example, Limelight, 1952. So he really did it all. In fact, when it came to talking about what we were going to call him on the plaque, I tentatively suggested calling him Film Polymath, and somebody on our panel said, well, that's a bit of a pretentious term for such an unpretentious man, at which point I kind of withdrew that idea. But in a sense, that's that's what he was. I mean, he really did do it all. I mean, it, it was quite remarkable. His first feature, which he wrote, produced and directed and appeared in, was called The Kid. It's 1921. And it's a brilliant film. I would recommend watching it. It's up there on YouTube. It's easy to find. It's essentially set in, in, a, in a version of the London that he knew. It's comic and it's touching. It's about his tramp character finding a baby and having to look after this baby. And it's got one of the best child acting performances ever, I think, from uh, Jackie Coogan, who plays the the little boy in it. It's a wonderful film. Is it another short film? No, it's about 50 minutes, that one. So, I mean, as I say, it's, a, it's his first feature. It's when they start to actually um, become 
I guess, what you'd call proper stories. I mean, obviously still silence, but it's it's such an art in itself. It's, it's a great watch. He also formed a Hollywood company that still exists today. Yes, that's right. I mean, he formed, uh, it was, it, he was frustrated with the sort of studio system as it, as it was then and felt that essentially people were being exploited. I mean, he did have a strong sense of his own talent and his own self-worth. So it was with Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford that he formed United Artists, which, as you say, still exists today. What do we know about his earnings then from those early films to uh, as he sort of started to gather popularity and, and pace? Well, I mean, he got he got the first million dollar contract of anybody in 1917. And of course, I mean, it's eye popping what that would be worth today. I, I, I couldn't put a figure on it, but it's, it would be extraordinary. And that was from First National gave him that. So that's before he formed United Artists. But he was very much the main man, the leading the leading star of the day. By 1917, Sidney Chaplin was actually out with him in Hollywood and was acting as his business manager. So a lot of credit goes to Sidney for managing to uh, negotiate deals like that. And with success, obviously, perhaps there comes interest from uh, romantic partners. Did he marry in the United States? Yes, uh, more than once. In fact, he married four times and he had 11 children in all, the youngest of whom was born when he was 73 years old. So he definitely um, didn't uh, suffer for the, for the want of, of, of the tension from women. One thing that really sticks out to me in, in my research for, for this episode was obviously The Great Dictator. This was in 1940. How successful was this particular film? It was very well received um, in the US and the UK, I mean, it was timely. It came out in 1940. If had it come out any earlier, then it was set to be banned in the UK because, of course, up until 1939, well, September 1939, essentially the UK government was trying to appease Hitler and they considered that it was uh, not helpful to that policy. As you say, Chaplin appears in the film and he plays, which, which is, of course, a, a talkie by that time, and he plays Herr Adenoid Hinkle, who is a very thinly disguised Adolf Hitler with possibly elements of Mussolini and other dictators thrown in. But he also in the film plays a Jewish barber. And of course, you know, they swap places. And he actually said afterwards that he couldn't have made it if he'd known about the concentration camps at the time. Because, I mean, while a lot of people had an inkling of some of what was going on, that that wasn't known in in great detail. So, yeah, Hitler himself is said to have watched it twice. Uh, That was revealed by somebody who defected. And of course, the Nazis were convinced that uh, Chaplin was Jewish, which was not so although he did have a Romany grandmother. So that would have been enough to have got him sent to a a concentration camp, of course, under their regime. Right. Off screen, though, I gather there was some backlash against Chaplin in the years building up to The Great Dictator. What, What was that about? Well, there were a number of things. I mean, in Britain, there was some reaction against him being abroad and avoiding service in World War I. So that was one part of it. But later on in America, he was three times divorced. And of course, we're so used to film stars getting married and getting divorced now. We just don't think it, we think of it as normal. Of course, then there was no normal. There were, he was one of the first film stars. So then it was regarded as pretty shocking. And particularly his second marriage broke up in a very sort of public and unpleasant way. There was a paternity suit that was taken out against him. And so there's sort of just negative publicity of that sort that sort of didn't do him a lot of good, really. And he married his, his fourth wife, who he was actually with for the rest of his life, when he was 54 and she was 18. So again, that raised a few eyebrows too. So it was really his sort of personal life, along with, I suppose, the fact that 
when you're talking about any sort of artistic endeavour, people have a period when they're in fashion and a period when they go out of fashion. They become last year's things. So I suspect there's a, an element of, of that too. What were his political leanings? Well, he was left wing. I mean, he was openly sympathetic to the Soviet Union during World War II. And of course, that didn't help him much either. So he never took American citizenship. That's something to be clear. He, he remained an English British citizen. So, I mean, that's why he got into such hot water in, in the sort of post-war era. What did that cause him to do? Did, did he have to move or live somewhere else? Yeah, well, indeed, yes. I mean, as, as, as we've said, I mean, we are approaching the 70th anniversary, 19th of September 1952. The United States barred him from re-entering the country after a trip to England. He actually came to London to go to the premiere of Limelight, which was his film about, aptly enough, a fading musical star, partly, I think, based on his own father's experience and it partly a, a reflection on his own you know, experiences of, of the fleeting nature of, of fame and the fickleness of, of public opinion. So he came to London for the premiere. He had a bit of a premonition that he might not get let back in. And he wasn't. And this, of course, this was the era of the McCarthyite period in the United States where there was the sort of Reds under the bed scare where a lot of Hollywood people were being fingered for having communist leanings. Now, he'd also, I guess, not helped himself in that sense by making a film called Monsieur Verdot in 1947, which had themes that were seen as anti-capitalist and anti-war. He denied being a communist. George Orwell thought that he was. It became quite hard for people to prove a negative on. And of course, a lot of people who were actually American-born ended up having to leave the country in order to pursue their careers. What effect did not being able to enter the US on the 19th of September 1952 have on Chaplin's career? Well, I mean, we, we don't know because we don't know what would have happened had he been permitted to go back, but it probably curtailed it, is the short answer. I mean, he did make two more films in the UK, which were A King in New York, uh, 1957, which uh, has none other than Sid James in it, as I discovered last night. From the Carry On films? Uh, well, well, yes, indeed. Yes, it was obviously worth, uh, before Sid did all that lot, but um, he's in that film too. And then his last film was called Countess from New York, uh, 1967. And neither were great successes. Now, had he been allowed to stay in Hollywood, had he not sort of, you know, needed to leave, then that could have been different. The thing he did do in later life, which was a great success, was his autobiography, which came out in 1964. It was translated into 25 languages and, was, and, and inspired a, a great deal of interest. Had he already left filmmaking by the time he'd uh, written that book then? Well, no, he made one more in 1967. But yeah, I mean, largely that, then that was it. Um, Things were winding up, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So did he retire to somewhere? Some people, if they're lucky, might like to retire to a warmer temperature country. Did he do something like that during his retirement? Yes, he, he, yes, he did. That's, he, he didn't actually ever permanently settle back in Britain. When he was in London, he tended to stay at the Ritz, the Carlton and the Savoy, which is a bit of a contrast to around the back of the Haywards Pickle Factory. <laughs> yeah. um, but he actually lived in Vevey in Switzerland, but he never gave up his British citizenship. He was eventually knighted in 1975, which apparently had been considered 20 years previously, but had been nixed on the basis that it might offend the Americans. Interesting point. And he was also belatedly given an, a special Academy Award. So there was some sort of recognition that he had been rather harshly treated. And so it was in Vevey in Switzerland at his home that he died on Christmas Day, 1977. And there's a rather macabre postscript to that in that his body was stolen by extortionists who fortunately weren't very good at it and they were caught and confessed. 
When we look back then at uh, the number of places where English heritage could have commemorated Charlie Chaplin's time in London with blue plaques or a blue plaque, how easy was it to research for you where the blue plaque would go? Well, the quality of his autobiography was a, was a great help because it's actually, as his definitive biographer, David Robinson, has said, it does sort of, it checks out against, you know, other sources, as in he, had, he wrote it in his 70s and his, his powers of recollection were very good. So he did talk about some of the places that he, he'd lived in. I mean, the place he talked about the most after he left was a place called 15 Pownall Terrace, which was just off the Kennington Road. Uh, and this was the place that he revisited in 1921 when he came, made a sort of triumphal return to, to London after the uh, First World War. And um, that has gone. He, 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 he actually he believed it had gone in World War II. He made a broadcast in World War II, propaganda broadcast, where he referred to it having been bombed by the Luftwaffe. Uh, not so, actually. It was the uh, 1960s planners who got rid of it, not the, not the Luftwaffe, but it was still there just about in 1964. But this building had gone. And I think that led to a belief. I mean, when I started working on, on blue plaques in 2004, I, one of the first questions I asked was, it's a bit odd that there's no official plaque to Charlie Chaplin. And the answer was, oh, well, all the addresses have either been commemorated by other people or they've gone. So, I mean, it actually turned out that this building, Glenshaw Mansions, where he'd lived for two years, which by his standards was, it was a long time, was sort of hiding in plain sight, really. I mean, it is mentioned in the in the autobiography, but unfortunately, um, we didn't know that until until more recently. It was actually somebody pointed out another address, actually in the 1901 census, where he's at 94 Ferndale Road in Brixton, along with other members of the eight Lancashire lads. And uh, as a result of that intelligence, we kind of reopened the case and looked at it and discovered there was this other address that was actually, well, considerably stronger in terms of the, the you know, the evidence that he's actually there and because he, he, he writes about it quite movingly. So it was in that sense an easy choice. But it, I say there were, there were actually 20 addresses that he lived at. And um, I, I managed to identify most of them, I think, by various means using things like uh, electoral registers. Actually, the school records were very useful for not so much Charlie, but his brother, because there's admission registers for many schools. And therefore, you can see where the uh, the parents are living at, at any given point. And some of those around the sort of turn of the century were, were around. I mean, places like uh, Three China Walk, which was somewhere around where the, where the Lambeth Walk is. But all these, all these addresses um, turned out to have gone. I mean, there's been so much change in, in that area of London that most of them, as I say, have gone. The Ferndale Road one that I mentioned is actually um, still there. And there's also an address called Linton Mansions in Lam- Lambeth. And um, Charlie Chaplin lived there for a while in around the sort of turn of the century. Not for very long, but it's still a, still a connection. Can you describe the placement of the blue plaque and what the building where it's been placed actually looks like and what sort of area? Well, Glenshaw Mansions is at the top of the Brixton Road near to Oval Tube. So it's a, it's a nice busy road, which we like because it means lots of people will see the plaque for, as they walk past or go past on the bus. And it's basically, it's above the door that he would have gone in to number 15. Number 15 was in one of the upper floors. And that's the, the place that he shared with Sydney. They moved to in 1908 having got their money from the Fred Carno troupe, and they were able to spend £40, quite a lot of money then, at a second-hand furniture shop in Newington Butts, which is Elephant Castle. And they bought couch, two armchairs, fretwork Moorish screen, and that was lit from behind with a yellow bulb. 
and they had a tasteful female nude portrait, as he called it, in the other corner. And he described the effect as, quote, a combination of a Moorish cigarette shop and a French whorehouse, but we loved it. (laughs) And he referred to it uh, not only in his autobiography, but also in a novella he wrote called Footlights, which was close to the film. So the plaque was unveiled in 2017 by Paul Merton, who, of course, is a, is a great aficionado of, of Chaplin and Buster Keaton and early silent stars. I'll just tell you one story about when I went on the site visit to look at the look at Glenshaw Mansions. One, one of the things that I suppose technology has, has taken away, which, which used to happen, was that it, it was always a bit of a hit and miss when you went on a site visit as to whether the building would survive in a suitable state to bear a plaque. And we can now more or less ascertain that using Google Street View, of course. But on this occasion, I was bold a bit of a googly when I turned up because I went to look at the south end of the building and by the door, I spied a blue plaque and I thought, oh God, no, someone else has got their first on this one too. And I walked up to the door, which isn't the same one that Chaplin would have gone in on. And the plaque is to the comedian Max Wall, who was born in Glenshaw Mansions in 1908. So the year that Chaplin moved in. Max Wall was born in the same building, which is quite a coincidence. Now, Max Wall is a comic of the of a later generation who, for those of, of you who haven't heard of him, he he was a kind of fairly ubiquitous on telly and so on in, in the 1960s and 70s and was known for his rather extraordinary haircut, which was a sort of uh, bald on top and long at the sides. So much relief that the plaque was to Max Wall and not Chaplin, and therefore we were able to go ahead and commemorate uh, Chaplin at this place his longest standing surviving London address, which was uh, really good news and, and high time, I think. Yes. As you say, you can see it if you're driving past, walking past, or if you're on the top level of the bus. Because I think if you're on the top deck of a bus and you look to your left, you'll sort of see it above the doorway. It, yes, if, you, if you're going north, yeah. that's right. You'd, you'd, look, you'd look to the left it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's fairly prominent. It's quite a tall building as well, isn't it? I mean, for anyone listening who ha- hasn't quite got a picture in their head, it, when we say mansions, it's not like a number of country it's a four-story yes it's a four-story building with with shops underneath Mm. so yeah it was it was a warm day when we unveiled it and i remember popping in for some soft drinks uh, to one of the shops underneath so america might have been the place where chaplin really made his name but um how significant would you say chaplin's formative years in london were I think they were extremely significant i mean you've got the development of the social conscience for a start which was as a result of his own hard experiences. So that, that's, a, that's a big thing. And then, and then you get the more direct references to his time in London, which you can see in the films. I mentioned the kid earlier as being a favourite of mine. And that actually makes direct reference to this place in Pownall Terrace, where he and his mother and brother lived in this dreadful sort of attic garret room. And there's a, there's a running joke throughout the kid where... Charlie, the, the tramp, he, he wakes up in the morning and he sits up in bed and he bangs his head on the ceiling, which is a sloping ceiling. And that happens all the time. And that, that's clearly, you know, reference to Paranormal Terrace. And I guess there's also an intriguing uh, sort of counterfactual, which is that Chaplin did actually come back after his Fred Carno trip around America in 1912. And he said that he had, quote, looked forward to returning to London and our comfortable little flat. But it turned out uh, that when Sid came to meet him at the station, Sid had got married and he'd given the flat up and, and moved on. And as Chaplin said, I suppose if I had returned to our little flat, my feelings might have been different. So had things been different, he might have, he might have stayed in London. He might have had his career in England. And, and who knows how that might have turned out. But it's, it's an intriguing one to uh, speculate on. Yeah, so the, the fact that the flat was taken away almost took away his home. So he kept on travelling, kept on 
That's right. Well, he he found he found a room at the back of the Brixton Road somewhere, but he found it depressing, and so he just basically um, took the next opportunity to go back to America. If you're putting together a summary of Charlie Chaplin's life, what's his impact on British American world cinema? I mean, he's huge, isn't he? Yes, I think he's he's had a huge impact on on whole generations of comedians since. I mean, he's still kind of widely cited as an influence by various people. I mean, I mentioned Paul Merton, who, as I say unveiled the plaque for us in, in 2017. And it also, it sort of cut a path to um, Hollywood for many others. I mean, including people like Stan Laurel, who also went through the, uh, the Fred Carno mill. So he was influential in that sense too. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll explore the surprising history of another London landmark. Wellington Arch. Waterloo happened in 1815. The Green Park Arch and the Marble Arch were built in about 1825 to 1828. And the whole Wellington Memorial aspect is something which happened later in the 1830s. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>